0: Call it the information theory of aging. 80% of our lifespan is determined by how we live our lives. We can turn on these survival systems and epigenome stabilizers, eating a lot less often. You can take a sirtuin-activating molecule, which is resveratrol. These all work, we think, because they're turning on these defense pathways. The kind of discoveries we're making, I didn't think that we'd see in my lifetime. There's a backup hard drive of youthfulness in cells that we can access.
1: Tactics lying herein. Are you ready? Let's do this. Welcome back to the Melanie Avalon Biohacking Podcast. Today's episode, guys, I know I've been talking about it on the Intermittent Fasting Podcast for months now. That is because I had this episode scheduled originally quite a while back, booked for an hour with David Sinclair. And as it turned out, if we pushed back the recording date a little bit, I could have an entire hour and a half with him. Totally worth it. That's how excited I am about this interview. I just can't even describe how excited I am about this interview. I don't want to make the other episodes jealous, but prepping for it, recording it, everything was like the Disney World Christmas magicalness of everything I could ever want in this podcast. So please enjoy it. The show notes for today's episode will be at MelanieAvalon.com slash Lifespan. Today is also a special day because it is Black Friday. Happy Black Friday. I hope everybody's Thanksgiving was absolutely wonderful. So I will say I've actually never been excited about Black Friday. I kind of go into a cave and hide because I'm not a huge shopper in stores. I'm not a huge shopper in general. But now that I've become a quote biohacker, all of these products and amazing things I'm obsessed with are running amazing Black Friday deals. So now I actually am super pumped about Black Friday. (laughs) I am a Himalaya partnered show. And if you'd like early access to this podcast 24 hours in advance, just follow me in the Himalaya app. Also, please join me in my Facebook community. That is Paleo OMAD Biohackers, intermittent fasting plus real foods plus life. It's a wonderful world of all things biohacking, longevity, lifespan, intermittent fasting, so many things. So definitely join me there now without further ado please please enjoy this episode with david sinclair hi friends welcome back to the show i have been looking forward to this episode for months i can already say it's probably my favorite episode (laughs) i'm just so excited to be here i am here with david sinclair the man honestly needs no introduction he is a professor in the Department of Genetics and co director of the Paul F. Glenn Center for the Biology of Aging at Harvard. He is the co creator and co chief editor of the journal Aging. He's been nominated in Time Magazine's list of the 100 most influential people in the world, as well as their top 50 in healthcare. He's all over the place the Today Show, all the news outlets, all the podcasts, and he has a new book, which I think is probably the only book I own in every format available, <laughs> print, Kindle and Audible. And that is Lifespan, why we age and why we don't have to. And then lastly, I tell my parents and my family every about every guest I'm having on this podcast. And my dad has never heard of anybody. Um, he had heard of you. So that is, <laughs> that is a big deal <laughs> in our family. Thank you so much for being here, David.
0: Uh, Melanie, yeah. uh, thanks for that introduction. Well, it's all downhill from here.
1: No, uh, <laughs> not at all. <laughs>
0: no, it's a, it's an honor to be on here, and I've, I've followed you on social media, and I know your book, um, your latest book. It's uh, and w- you know, we we actually share the same agent. We just found out, so we have a lot in common, actually.
1: Yes, it's a very very small world, and you you speak to my obsession in life, which is the mechanisms of aging and lifespan, and oh, and for listeners. If you guys, most people now are pretty familiar uh, pretty familiar with the compound resveratrol and the health benefits of red wine, it's quite likely that you know about that because of David's work. You've contributed so much to the health world and super grateful for your work.
0: You're welcome. My sales of red wine went up 30% when we published in 2006 and uh, they've stayed up. So everybody who enjoys a glass of red wine, uh, you're welcome.
1: I know, it's amazing. I will say, first of all though, your Audible version of the book I was so thrilled that you narrated it because I'm an audiobook recorder myself. I'm a huge consumer of audiobooks, and I love it when authors narrate their own books. Hearing you read Lifespan, which by the way, Lifespan, it's a very dense book. Well, dense in a good way. It goes very intensely into the science of aging. It's very scientific. It's very technical, but it's also a, a beautiful book. It's very poetic and you can really hear your voice coming through. So hearing you narrate it just really made it such an approachable book to a subject that I think a lot of people can find very daunting. Yeah. What was your experience like recording that?
0: Uh, Well, it's tough hearing your own voice. I think everyone feels that way, Uh, but it was the right thing to do. I had advice um, from Joe Rogan in in particular. He said uh, he'll be very angry with me if I don't read this book myself. Um, and then I thought, what would it be like if if someone read it and I didn't like it? Then I'd kick myself. So I spent four days in a studio. Uh, two of them were in LA. Two were in Boston. And it's pretty easy when you start reading a book, and uh, I enjoyed that. But after you've done it for four days, it's pretty hard to keep up the enthusiasm. And and it's not just one take. It's you know, let's go back. the, the editor is on the line. They say, okay read that again, more emphasis, oh, you screwed up that word, you left out the comma, you, ch- you changed the name of that person. And I also found out that uh, I was mispronouncing the names of my students, and I'd been doing that for their whole time in my lab for the last three years. And uh, finally, that they, they told me, that's not how you pronounce his name. And I went back and I said, have I been saying your name the wrong way? And they went, yep, but I didn't want to tell you.
1: Oh, man. That's really funny, <laughs> um,
0: but it was worth doing. And actually, what we did in the audio book, which I hope uh, you enjoyed, was to put snippets in between the chapters of my co-author and I and how we came up with this book.
1: Yeah, I love those. They're they're very conversational, and um, I thought, yeah, they added a nice tempo to the book and provided some nice a b- break from like the science and kind of just a look at like the whole process and what that was like for you. So yeah, I loved that.
0: the The process was pretty. Um, intense because Matt, the plant who helped me write it, he's a he's a professional writer um, at Utah State University. I had to somehow download my entire brain, character, way of speaking into his. So we spent many months together on whiteboards in my office here, just doing that. And he brilliantly saw these connections between this story, that story, and he's a very good writer. And and after he gave me the first draft. I would go back and I'd fix the science, make sure that it was correct and put references in and add little extras that that then he frustratingly had to fix. Um, But there's no way that he could have written such a book and there's no way I could have written such a book. This is a book that took three people um, an entire year uh, or more to put together. And there's illustrations, there's drawings of the characters that I've put in the back. Actually, most people don't realize I drew those, but I did. And it's come off, you know, I threw everything I had into this, and I'm a fairly fastidious perfectionist, and I'm really, really pleased with how it turned out. It's a it's a secret. Most people don't know that, and I don't broadcast it. But uh, what happened was I had photos of these colleagues of mine that I wrote about and, you know, sketches from, from the internet. Some of them are historical figures. And Simon & Schuster, with 28 days to go before publication, said, oh, you can't use those. Those are a copyright. I said, are you kidding me? What if I, you know, find the photo? They said, oh, you have to find everybody who painted it or took the actual photo. And 28 days, I'd never do that. So there were 28 characters coincidentally. And so for 28 days, every day, I got home from work around 8, 9 p.m. and sketched one of the characters in my
1: book. You're talking about the people? No. You drew those?
0: Yeah, they're bigger in life size. They're about a foot high. And in the book they're down to smaller than a postage stamp.
1: You drew these?
0: Yeah, each one every night. It took me about two hours for each one.
1: Oh my goodness. These are incredible. They look like they like photos.
0: Thanks. Well your listeners know something that no one else does. You can wow. download them off, off my website uh, if you'd like to see them before you buy the book, or if you have the audiobook.
1: That's I'm I'm very impressed right now. <laughs> that is very impressive.
0: Um, oh, the website. I know people are thinking, "What? what is the website? It's lifespanbook, lifespanbook.com.
1: So for listeners, I will definitely put links to all of that in the show notes. Um, but anyways, so to start things off into our conversation about aging and lifespan and all of the things, would you t- like to tell listeners a little bit about your personal health history and why, what made you so interested in longevity?
0: Yeah. So my interest in longevity started very young. Um, I think when we're all about four or five years old, we realize that one day our parents will be gone. Everything around us will be gone. And that was pretty horrible. And not only that, my grandmother who raised me, she was a young grandmother. She was full of life, but she said, one day I'm going to get old and sick and you're going to have to come visit me in a nursing home. And that was horrific. And most kids, as I've learned... uh, experience this same pain when they learn this, but very quickly they forget about it. And I think we've, as a species, we, we tend to do that because you can't think about the hor- horrors of of being human every day, or it just becomes uh, a little bit too much, I think. But I'm just one of those people that always thinks the world can be better and that humans can solve every problem if we just put our minds to it. And this was a big problem that I wanted to solve, not to live forever, but to allow People I love, and people that well, in other families that are, of course, love to not have to be spoon-fed when they're old, and you know, bathed with a sponge. That's just horrible. We accept it, and we call it natural. But that doesn't have to be the way our lives end. And so, ever since four years old, I've been wanting to do this. I got a PhD in Australia, went to MIT, uh, and uh, spent four years there working on yeast, and we discovered why yeast cells get old. And it turns out the same things that we learned about their aging process just recently we've discovered are very likely to be true in our bodies. And the same stresses on the yeast cells uh, that make them live longer work through the same genetic pathways that we discovered, um, and those exist in our bodies as well. So it's been 25 years. I'm now at Harvard. I've been at Harvard since I was 29, so I'm 50 now, so it's been a while. But it's a very exciting time, and the kind of discoveries we're making now, I didn't think that we'd see in my lifetime and technology is going so fast, discovery is going so fast. And there are things that I didn't even anticipate that th- things like there's a backup hard drive of youthfulness in cells that we can access and essentially reset the body to be young again. We're doing that in mice and we'll be hopefully doing that in people a couple of years from now
1: that is fantastic and super excited to jump into the nitty-gritty of it. I did have a question right off the bat hearing you talk about that. And I loved how you you talk in the book about your experience working with yeast and I've heard you talk on other podcasts about how you grow sort of fond of these these cells. How how applicable are studies in yeast and rodents as far as like transferring the implications of that to humans?
0: Well, good question. There's there's really two questions in that. One is, does the biology of a yeast cell tell us about the biology of a human um, or a mouse to a human? And there it's absolutely uh, very similar, if not the same. In a yeast cell, there have been, I think at last count, nine Nobel prize prizes awarded for studies of yeast that have told us about our own biology. And I don't see why that's likely to be any different for aging and longevity and understanding how fasting works. Yeast are very similar to us. They have 16 chromosomes. We share a lot of their genes, a majority. Um, and they struggle through life just like we do. We're built of the same stuff, essentially. But the second question, part of the question is, do drugs that have worked in mice or on yeast cells work in humans? And there it's different because we're We're sensitive to different chemicals, we have different microbiomes, and often drugs that work in mice don't work in humans. Um, Diabetes drugs are typically more predictive than cancer drugs, Um, but really what what I'm excited about is not are we going to have a drug tomorrow or in five years, it's have we finally understood why we age and are there things we can do in our lives now that will slow that process or reverse it? And I think the answer is yes.
1: I hope the answer is yes. <laughs> Speaking to that why we age, so historically there've been a lot of different theories for why for why we do age. So things like natural selection or like the selfish gene theory, damage to DNA, different stressors. What are your thoughts on all the various You know theories that have been proposed up until this point and why do you think they are or are not painting an accurate picture i I know in the book you present aging as a disease which is kind of a new way of looking at things um so do you think all these historical theories have like bits of them are true or why are they not comprehensive enough what are your thoughts there
0: yeah so people have been studying aging in a comprehensive way for the last 50 or so years over the last 50 years, scientists have put forth oh, more than a dozen theories about why we age. In the 1950s, 60s, it was all about radiation. That was the, the mode of, of the moment. Um, beyond that, it was free radicals and then um, mitochondrial damage. Then there was telomere shortening. And, uh, and then more recently, people said, well, we don't know why we age, but we have a list of hallmarks. Let's go with that. And so about 10 years ago, we scientists all agreed that there are about eight or nine causes of aging, or hallmarks as we want to call them. And these are things that you would have heard of probably. Uh, Telomeres getting shorter, and mitochondria get dysfunctional, and DNA damage, and all of those things. And finally, the field said, okay, if we can't agree on one cause, let's just say that there are eight or nine causes and be done with it. And we did that. And that that was good because it stopped the infighting, and this field has been quite a vicious one. Over, over the last uh, 20, 30 years, um, you know, how scientists get, they, they fight over little things. Um, and uh, But it's getting better, actually, because we, we now agree, at least, on a framework of what causes aging. But I wasn't satisfied with that. First of all, uh, all of these theories have problems, which I describe in, in the book fairly briefly. Uh, for instance, the free radical idea, um, antioxidants haven't been very successful at extending the lifespan of a yeast cell or a mouse, let alone a human. And uh, so that's been disappointing. But but here's the, the main point that I want to make, and that is that uh, I believe you can distill aging down to essentially an equation, a simple principle that can explain and unite all of these various causes that scientists agree have during aging. And I call it the information theory of aging. And essentially it means that the information that we get Um, during our formation in the womb, the instructions to read the genome in the right way and read the right genes to keep us healthy, that information, which is called epigenetic information, is lost over time. And we've been able to test this hypothesis by messing up this information in a mouse and it gets old, and more recently, resetting the cell so that it reads the genes the right way and animals get their vision back when they're old.
1: I love this concept and this idea that you've come up with as with aging as loss of information. So for listeners, can you kind of paint a picture of what this looks like physically? Because I think people think genes, DNA, and then I I think the epigenome is becoming more and more popular now with the idea of epigenetics, but I think it's kind of like ethereal the way people think about it, like epigenetics, you know, environment, influences, like it's hard to picture what that actually looks like on a physical cellular level. So what does that look like as far as like DNA, the genes, the the genome and the epigenome?
0: It's really uh, quite simple and beautiful. Um, you just have to imagine yourself getting smaller and smaller. So if we do that let's shrink down to the size of a cell, and we're now on the outside of the cell, there's a wobbly membrane. We can swim through that membrane, pierce a hole. Now we're inside the cell, then we can see this uh, this bubble called the nucleus that contains the chromosomes. If we swim through one of the holes in that nucleus, we'll now see the chromosomes, and they're going to be vibrating around. them, are quite uh, energetic down at that level. And what The chromosomes are doing is that they're having loops of dna that open up so you you can access them the cell can go in and read those genes in those loops and dna is just a chemical string that you can basically it's not flailing around like a big ball of string it's actually mostly compacted up wrapped into little bundles with big loops that come out so that genes can be read and when the cell needs to read genes the loops come out and the cell reads those genes and when they want to the cell wants to shut off those genes in the, in the DNA. It bundles them up tightly around proteins. Um, and so it's, it's very much like uh, just a beads on a string, and depending on how tightly you pack them, determines whether a gene is switched on or switched off. And that pattern of loops and bundles, loops and bundles, is what dictates the music of our lives. Basically, the, that pattern determines whether your skin cell is a skin cell or your brain cell is a brain cell. The problem that I think is going on is that When cells get damaged, either by DNA uh, damage or some other threat, and they need to quickly open up the chromosome and create lots of loops so they can read new genes, or if the DNA is broken and they have to go in and repair it, there's all of this unpacking. And then after you've finished, you have to repack it back to hopefully how it was before. But every time you open up the chromosome and let the DNA expand into a loop and put it back together, it's similar to re-gifting. You can re-gift a present if you're very careful once, but if you re-gift a present 50 times, uh, the wrapping paper is going to look pretty bad. And it's quite similar in that regard. And what happens to those cells over time is that instead of reading the beautiful symphony of the genes and those loops being perfect, coming on every time at the right place, they're all over the place. And now the cells are reading the wrong genes. And nerve cells forget that the nerve cells and skin cells forget their skin cells because they're turning on these genes that shouldn't be on. Um, And they're also turning off genes that shouldn't be off. And that's the epigenome. And that's the information that keeps us young. And I'm saying, for the first time, I think I'm the first person to say that that process is what's driving aging and disease.
1: So now I'm, I'm just thinking about this picture that you've painted. So if genes, if there was only one option... For genes to be turning on and off, okay. How do I say this? Like, would that mean there'd be less room for potential loss of information or damage? But because there's all these potentials of th- genes that could be on or genes that could be off or things that could be read or not read, that that's why there's more likely slip-ups because there's so much potential, so many things that you could possibly do. So things have to go back to the way they were, rather than a door just opening and closing.
0: Yeah, so early life forms could probably live for very long, Um, but it doesn't mean that just because you have more genes you're going to have a shorter lifespan. Otherwise, we would only live a day and a yeast would live for 80 years, but that's not true. So what cells have evolved are ways to stop the packaging from becoming completely unraveled uh, and actually repackage it very carefully. And what we're finding is that long-lived animals – There's a naked mole rat, this horrible looking animal that lives underground. It lives a lot longer than regular rodents. And its epigenome, these structures I've described, are much more stable over time. They manage to repackage them quite nicely. And probably if you go and look at another organism that's closely related to us, a bowhead whale, which lives 100 years longer than we do, they probably have a much more stable structure. The analogy that I also like to talk about is a pianist. And instead of having 80 keys on a piano, we have uh, what uh, 25,000 of these keys. And you can play them very differently to make different cells. As we get older, it's as though the pianist is playing the wrong tunes. But the the piano is still there. And perhaps in in the case of long-lived organisms, the pianist doesn't make so many mistakes until much later in life. Um, But what's exciting also is that we can now Uh, look at the pianist, we can read how she's doing, how she's playing. Um, We can even fix her and make her play the notes that she did when she was young, which is great. Um, but, But how she plays those notes seems to be a very accurate predictor of how long we live. And in fact, there are chemicals on DNA that control these loops called methyls. And the amount of methylation and the patterns of methylation on our genomes is a great clock. We call it the epigenetic clock. We can measure that I can predict how long you're going to live, but the good news is that the epigenome, as you've hinted at, is malleable. We're not dictated by our genes. Actually, 80% of our lifespan is determined by how we live our lives, and that's because the epigenome is the major driver of disease and aging.
1: Hi, friends. Do you want to come hang out with me and Dave Asprey and so many other guests I've had on the show? You simply must come to the 10th Annual Biohacking Conference Seating is limited. They do sell out. They sold out last year. So get your ticket now. And if you come, definitely let me know because I want to meet you. So hopefully see you guys in Dallas. MelanieAvalon.com slash conference with coupon code BCMelanie. Get your tickets now. I'll see you guys there. Hi, friends. One of the most valuable things that I do every single night of my life is my infrared sauna session. The brand that I use is Sunlighten. We'll also put that in the show notes. All right. Now back to the show. Okay. You touched on so many things there. Um, I, I think people's ears are going to perk up when they hear the word methylation because especially now, I mean, it's probably so complicated, but people will often focus on like MTHFR and they'll know that that's like a methylation problem. And I think I think that's probably like the extent of what a lot of people think when they hear methylation. Is that is that related to methylation? Is methylation a much much more complicated process than that?
0: No, not at all. So methyls are used for a variety of chemical reactions in the body, but they're also used to store information. In the case of the epigenome, these methyl chemicals, which is really just a, a carbon with three hydrogens, not, nothing confusing. These methyls get added onto the DNA. And it's the cell's way of saying, I'm planting a flag on this gene this is how this gene should behave. And typically methylation will shut a gene down because it encourages the bundling up of the genes. But as we get older, those methyls, and if you should think of methyls like the plaque on our teeth, if we don't scrape away the plaque on our teeth, we're gonna have a horrible mouth. Similar to our genome, we're gonna accumulate this DNA methylation crust. And uh, and that's what causes the, the pianist to, to screw up um, because the methyls are telling the pianist which notes to play.
1: The crust on the teeth thing actually made me think of something I was wondering when I was reading your book, because you, you talk about this concept and you just talked about it. Now you talk about reteaching the piano player, how to, you know, play the, play the piano without messing up. And you also talk about in your book, another analogy that you provide is, is like a a scratch DVD and losing information in the DVD. Would that be the same analogy or for the same situation?
0: Yes. Yes. That's just another way. Um, I think there are a number of people, especially young people who don't really know about DVDs that much, but uh, they're a useful analogy that the genes are like the the music and the scratches are what happens during aging. And similar to an old cell that doesn't read the right genes, a scratch DVD isn't going to read the music very well. But the good news is that you can polish a DVD and we also think you can do the same to our cells so that they read the music again.
1: So question there if if it's a loss of information is it just a matter of adding back the information so like because like with the dvd analogy it's like you're removing the scratches so are you removing something that was lost are you getting rid of are you ad- taking off the damage or are you adding back information
0: ah oh, you've just asked the most important question so if someone can solve that exactly how that works, I think they'd win a Nobel Prize. So only two years ago, we discovered in my lab that there's a backup copy of the epigenome. There's information in the cell that tells it where the the methyls should be and which which ones should be gotten rid of. So it's almost as though, it, with the let's go back to the plaque analogy, that the, the dentist knows which which is the good plaque and which is the bad plaque. Same with the cell. Those methyls, some of them are good because they tell a nerve cell to be a nerve cell, but there are others that are screwing up the cell. And what we know is that there are enzymes called the TETs, and those are enzymes that go and remove those methyls. And if, if we don't have the TETs in the in the experiment, in the cells or in the, in the animal, we don't get the reset. So what that tells us is that part of this resetting is getting back to the original information that we had in the cell. But there is a, there's a backup copy of that. Um, so we didn't know that existed. You might ask me, well, how does the cell know how to get back those loops the way they were before? How, do those, how does the cell know to take off those chemicals, those methyls at the right place, but leave all the others? We don't know the answer to that. That's the big question. We're looking right now where is the backup copy of youth in the cell? And I'll give you some ideas. It could be that there's some other chemical that sticks to our DNA that we don't know of. We're looking for that. There could be a protein that binds to our genome and says, hey, this is a youthful gene. Use me. Come back. Um, turn me on or, uh, or switch me off. We don't know what that is. We just know little pieces of this clock because it's only been two years since we discovered it. But we are making some rapid progress. Um, and at least we know some workings of, of the machine.
1: Okay. Yeah, because that's what I was thinking about last night when I was um, like reviewing everything because I was thinking about your theory and how it was this idea of returning back to the the backup copy. So knowing what the cell is originally. But then I was thinking about things like like scar tissue where it's like a, a buildup of something else as well. So it's like how do you get rid of this stuff that is... Extra, but then also returned to the original state. And how do we know that there is a backup copy? Because of your work?
0: Yeah, exactly. Well, we're in a weird moment in history because I'm talking to you about research that's very, very new. In 10 years ago, before we we had podcasts and before we had uh, basically the the whole of um, electronic publishing This kind of research probably would have made it into a book ten or twenty years from now, but you're all learning about it just as we're making these discoveries. In my book, I was writing down what it was like to make these discoveries as I was writing it, and so the reader gets a front-row seat on what it's like to be a scientist and make what could be a really important discovery. Um, But yeah, the, the. this discovery is still new. We are the one of a few labs in the world that do this research. Uh, five years from now, I, I bet there's 100 labs doing this. But it's really, really early. And, you know, I could have kept my mouth shut. I could have said, no, we'll. I don't need to tell anybody about this. But there are two reasons why I did. Now, the first is that I'm I'm basing my conclusions on 20 years of research. So I've seen a lot. And we've actually got a lot of evidence that this is true. So I'm not, I don't think I'm I'm saying anything that isn't correct. The other thing is that my research is paid for by the public majority of it anyway. So this is taxpayers money. And I think we scientists have a duty to be able to communicate our research to the public and inspire people. I mean, why would anybody bother paying for experiments or starting a career in science if they aren't inspired by what we do?
1: Yeah. And I think that really, really comes through in your book because for listeners, in case you're wondering, a large portion of it, especially the beginning is all of the science like we're discussing right now, but then you really go into the implications of your work and the future and like the implications for humanity. And it's, it's really, really beautiful. So I applaud you for that. Going back to the clock that you were talking about, the, the genetic methylation clock, does that Okay, does that relate to the, the Yamanuka factors or are those, um, are those different?
0: It, it's exactly right. So the way that we can communicate to the backup hard drive, wherever it is, uh, is through these Yamanaka factors. These are our communicators. And essentially we've, we've found the, the switch to the backup hard drive, but we're not exactly sure what's inside the hard drive. And these Yamanaka factors are a set of four genes that you can use to reprogram cells to be stem cells. This won the Nobel Prize in 2012. We don't want to turn our bodies into stem cells. We'd have a giant tumor in our bodies or die. So we need to figure figure out, we needed to figure out, how do these Yamanaka factors, can they take us partly back towards youth? Can they take these methyls off? And if we do that, does that just make the cell seem younger or does it actually reset the age of the cell? And do the cells function as though they're younger? And what we started to do was to, a couple of years ago, put three of the four Yamanaka genes into cells. Uh, We left one of them off. The fourth one is called MYC. That one is known to cause cancer. So for obvious reasons, we didn't include that one. But fortunately, those three genes were sufficient to take the age of those cells back and remove just the right methyls, so we saw that cells became younger. But that, you know, taking cells back in age isn't going to win any prizes. It's not that exciting, even though, uh, you know.
1: I think it's exciting. It's, well,
0: it <laughs> was it was exciting. I have to admit. But what came next just blew that out of the water. I have a student who's still here in the in the lab getting his PhD, Wan Chang Lu, and he his dad studies the eye, and he knew a lot about the eye, and he said, you know what, David. The nerves at the back of the eye are a very good system to study age reversal. And I said, oh, why is that? He said, because when you're very young, you're a baby, you lose the ability to regrow nerves. If you damage your eye as a baby, you're not going to, well, you you might get your vision back. But if you do it as an adult, you're not going to get your vision back. Same for your spinal cord, same for your brain. Very difficult. So he said, let me reprogram the eye of an old animal and see what happens. If we're right, it should regrow back when it's damaged. And that experiment that was done, um, I think it's about 18 months ago now, um, he put the Yamanaka factors into the eye of an old mouse. Then they pinched the back of the eye to give it some damage, and he found that when he turned on these genes in the eye, the optic nerves at the back of the eye grew back, which is uh, an extraordinary thing that, That was something we had never expected to to work so well. The longer we leave it, the longer those nerves grow back. In fact, they grow back all the way back to the brain. And so buoyed by those exciting results, we tried a couple of other experiments. We tested glaucoma. So you can give mice glaucoma, pressure in the eye that disrupts their vision. And we treated those with the Yamanaka factors and they got their vision back. And then we, we went for broke. We actually have a collaborator who works on the eye. He's the real expert, Bruce Cassandra. And uh, he said, oh, come on, we're not going to reverse vision in an old mouse. You can't reverse aging. And we said, just do it and tell us what happens, you know, kind of you know, nothing to lose. And so he did it and he called me at 10 o'clock at night and he said, David, I have to eat my words. The mice got back their vision as though they were young again. Perfect vision. This is incredible. I don't know how I'm going to sleep.
1: That is so Fantastic. It, it's kind of like, okay, so you know how people with electronics, you can often get like a refurbished versions of electronics, and people are always hesitant because you think if it's refurbished, yeah, it's like new, but it's refurbished, so it's probably going to break earlier. So are you seeing like with your work um, or like with that work with the eyes and the regrowing of the nerves, is it like it's completely like with no past, like there's no evidence of any past damage?
0: It looks like it's a complete reset because we can do two things. We can go in and take those cells and read all of their genes and, uh, and see which genes are on and off, right? If we're correct, the loops that were, that had gone awry and the bundles that had gone awry, messed up, they should all be reset. So then we can measure that by looking at which genes are on and off. And when we did that, It was a beautiful reset. It wasn't just a partial, oh, some of the genes go back. It was that genes that went down a little bit with aging after treatment went up a little bit back to normal. Genes that went way down with aging went way up with the treatment. And it's as though that memory was there, that genes knew how they should turn themselves on somehow and what they used to be uh, a year before in that when the mouse was young. And that, to me, was the the real proof that it's not just that we're making the cells healthier, but we're actually resetting the entire program. The other measure that we do is we actually measure the methyls on the DNA, and we can now do that pretty easily. And we can say, are those cells in the eye younger now after treatment than they were before? And we learned two things. The first was when you damage your eye, that accelerates aging which is pretty cool. We didn't know damage to the body accelerates aging, but it does. And that our epigenetic reversal, the backup hard drive reset, uh, took those cells back to a younger state. But here's here's what I think you're wondering. How many times can you reset the eye? Or how many times do you need to reset the eye? And we don't know the answer to that. We're going to be testing that over the next six months to see if this is a permanent reset, um, and probably it is. We think it's addressing the very deep layers of aging. Um, but it could be that one time reset is enough or is all we can do. It won't work again. I, I don't think that's likely. Um, but it could be that we could reset the eye 100 times. And if we can do that for the eye, imagine resetting the entire body 100 times. You know, Now we're into territory where your mind starts to wander and wonder what would the world look like if this comes true.
1: Okay, super super random question. I was recently listening to, I think, an entire podcast about the eye, and it was saying that we shouldn't wear contacts actually because of the damage they created to the eye. Um, does this at all relate to LASIK surgery? Is that completely different?
0: Uh, yeah, I don't, I don't know if that's true.
1: I, I'm just wondering how that factors in.
0: Well, what I can tell you is that we're probably not going to be able to fix um, blurred vision or cataracts. I'd be surprised if we can do that. Well, maybe I shouldn't say never. You know, everything seems to be magical when we try, but the it just seems harder to remove those um, those inclusions, those damages in in the cor- in the cornea and in the in the lens. It's it might be true. I mean the body is capable of great healing. So I would wouldn't I shouldn't say never. But what we what we're showing is that the retina, which is full of living cells, are actually just lying dormant and that we can rejuvenate those and that they they function quite beautifully just after a few weeks of treatment.
1: Gotcha. So it seems like which goes back to what I was wondering earlier. Is actual damage to things harder to address than I don't know how it's different from aging, but how it's different from re- just resetting.
0: Well, there's all t- different types of damage. Um, DNA damage seems to be the driver, main driver of this process, that of the epigenome information loss, the repacking and unpacking. But there's other types of damage. One, one thing that's probably difficult to get rid of are misfolded proteins that accumulate in similar to like crystals. In, in the brain, for instance, that's Alzheimer's. And what I predict and what we're testing is that, sure, you might still have these protein crystals in the brain, but perhaps they wouldn't cause as much harm if the brain was still young. And so we're thinking about perhaps not being able to remove every accumulated piece of damage in the body. Maybe that'll work. We don't know. But even if it doesn't work, I'm quite certain that if you make cells younger, they'll be able to cope with that damage better.
1: Okay. So maybe it wouldn't be perpetuating like a chronic inflammatory aging state. It would just Mm -hmm. sort of be there.
0: Right. Right. And I think we'll find that the underlying cause of most diseases that afflict us is the, the loss of the epigenome information. We haven't looked at it. Uh, the medical community isn't even thinking about it. They don't even have the the, the vocabulary to talk about it. But the reason that our tissues fail, um, I think, is largely because the cells lose their ability to read the genes the way they did when they were young. And as I mentioned earlier, damage to tissue accelerates the aging process, which is just going to make everything worse.
1: So correct me if I'm wrong, but did you say that you did a study in mice and that... It was something about how like some of the mice had experienced damage, but then you, you, you use these factors to reverse it. And they actually lived longer than the controls that had never been um, damaged. Uh, do you know which one I'm talking about? Does that ring a bell?
0: Uh, well, we have mice that we can accelerate aging by the ice mice that we disrupt the epigenome. And we have molecules that stabilize the epigenome such as the NAD boosting molecules. The one that I'm taking is NMN. And those mice are healthier um, and might might live longer.
1: I wrote down that you turned genes on and off in some mice and then um, it created damage, but then actually when you reversed it that they lived 40% longer than the controls.
0: Uh, yes, yeah, so that was um, an experiment done by Juan Carlos Belmonte at the Salk Institute. And so probably Juan Carlos is going to get the Nobel Prize for this research because he was the first one who actually showed that when you turn on four of the Yamanaka factors, um, it can help an animal that's sick. Now, the reason that his results were not considered highly likely to be valid by most people, except a few of us, myself included, is that he used all four factors, and those, those mice that he treated uh, would die after two days if he continued the therapy, which is, you know, not, not something I would advise anybody to do. Um, and you'll recall, if you use three of them, it, it's, it's safe, as far as we can tell. But he was the one that showed that when you turn on the four Yamanaka factors for two days a week and let the mice rest for five out of those seven, that those mice did live 30 to 40% longer. These were, these were mice um, called progeria mice, where they have a mutation that accelerates aging in, in mice and, and in humans. Those, have you ever seen the progeroid patients? They're usually kids in their teens that look like they're 80. That, that's what they gave to the mice, and then they tried to reverse that, and they managed to do that at least 40%. Wow.
1: Crazy, crazy. Okay. And then, so you mentioned NMN, bringing this to more of like a practical level, like lifestyle tips and interventions and things that we can do to to upregulate these um, anti-aging factors when it comes to genes. So I guess, well, so I'm also the co-host of the Intermittent Fasting Podcast and my book is largely about that. So that's one thing you discussed in your book is fasting, different dietary approaches, calorie restriction. Our Pretty much all of these hermetic stressors, exercise, cold and heat stress, are they all working on similar mechanisms as far as their anti-aging benefits?
0: Uh, We think they are. And going all the way back to 2002, we published a Nature paper that said, uh, for the first time in in yeast cells, we showed that heat and lack of sugar and energy and uh, amino acids was working through the same pathway. And we think that's true for our bodies, that these are all turning on um, these longevity pathways. The ones that we work on, the sirtuins, these are the NAD requiring enzymes. Uh, It's one of the reasons that I try to maintain my NAD levels very high, so that my sirtuins are active. And one of the, the questions that listeners might have is, what do these sirtuins have to do with what we just talked about? Well, sirtuins are the SIR in the name sirtuin stands for silent information regulator. And what they do is they create the bundles of DNA to turn genes off. And they're they're stabilizing the epigenome so that we don't lose that information to get older. And so the more sirtuin activity you have in the body, the better and the slower you age. And if you make a mouse that has a lot of one of these sirtuins, it will live longer. Uh, In part, we think because the The epigenome is longer-lasting, and you essentially don't get those scratches on the DVD. So that's how it all works. Now, the sirtuins do other things. They repair broken DNA, and they fix um, old protein, get rid of old protein. Um, But essentially, these are survival. This is a survival circuit, a very ancient one that evolved, we think, very early on the planet. And today, we can turn on these survival systems and epigenome stabilizers by doing the right things things that you mentioned, such as eating a lot less often, um, eating the right foods. You can take a sirtuin-activating molecule, which is resveratrol, which I I also do. Um, Hot, cold treatments also seem to be hormetic. And the reason that these all work, and exercise, of course, I shouldn't forget, these all work, we think, because they're turning on these defense pathways that the sirtuins control.
1: And so the sirtuins, do they they keep things quiet or do they repair things or they they do both?
0: They do both. The the problem for us and yeast is that the sirtuins have multiple jobs and because there's not enough of them in the body, a body just doesn't make enough, uh, they get distracted by various other things. So their main job is, to, like I said, to control which genes are on and off. You'll find them sitting on the DNA. But they get distracted by things like a broken chromosome because they get uh, they have to be released off the DNA and go over to where the break is and help repair that. And then they have to find their way back to where they came from. Uh, but they don't do that um, all the time. About 99% makes it back. 1% gets lost or gets stuck where it went. And we think that if you keep doing that, you that's what messes up the structure of the DNA and so that the cells can't read the the genome anymore the way it used to. And so one of the major drivers is a broken chromosome, a broken piece of DNA, because that's going to distract the sirtuins, sequester them, pull them away from what they're supposed to be doing. And then they don't all find their way back.
1: I remember reading that in the book, you talking about them not finding their way back. And I was like, that's so tragic. Um, Do you think that that could be a reason that people often get stuck in like chronic illness type situations? Because it's just... Perpetual damage, and then constantly, you know, reaffirming this. I don't know. Like, per, like, does the damage continue? Continue to perpetuate the damage, and then with the sirtuins like going all over the place, and they just can't deal. And then things just start continue to crash and burn. And maybe that's why it's so hard to get out of like a chronic illness situation.
0: Melanie should have been being a scientist in my lab. <laughs> I, I I might have an opening, oh, but. Man. Because you're hitting on all the questions that we're trying to address in in the lab. So I'll tell you an experiment that addresses your question. We can take uh, cells. uh, We call them ice cells. stands for inducible changes to the epigenome. We can turn on aging in those cells and age them rapidly in a day. And now these cells are like from an old person. Um, The interesting thing about that is that um, now the epigenome has all misfolded. But now we can ask your question, which is, are those cells now more likely to get additional DNA damage? And the answer is yes. As you age, you get more susceptible to DNA damage. Those loops and those bundles are essential to preventing further DNA damage. In fact, the more loops you have, the more exposed your DNA is to getting damaged. It loosens up the chromosome. And so, yeah, you're exactly right. We think that that's one of the reasons why we can be healthy till 60. And then after that, it's like falling off a cliff because it's this feed forward uh, process that just, just gets out of control.
1: Yeah. I mean, I've been researching more and more, especially the power of epigenetics and how even like mindset comes into play with all of that. And I just find it so fascinating, especially with the placebo effect, how people can experience such Radical changes from things or like spontaneous remissions from diseases after something seemingly simple like a like a mindset shift, but I often wonder if it is because it's completely rewriting the program in a way like it's changing that perpetuation of all of the damage and starting things anew, speaking of like the the damage and the stress and you you talk about how some stresses are too big to overcome. You talk about like stepping on a snail, like you, you can't really overcome that. <laughs> um, do you think it's possible for any sort of stress that we experience to be hormetic? And in theory, even like chronic stresses, maybe Lyme disease, heavy metals, things like that? Or are some stressors to the body always going to be negative and then? Only some stressors could be hermetic and positive.
0: Uh, well, it really depends on how much damage they cause and if the damage is reversible. Yeah, if if you tip the scales to where you're doing more damage than good, and it's and if especially if it's not reversible, then that you want to avoid. And that's why, besides stepping on a snail, um, it's also bad to take heavy metals, which will accumulate and continue to just cause problems. Um, but I I think that there are probably some other stresses we can give the body, and I don't mean psychological stress, I mean biological stress, um, that we haven't discovered yet. There, but there, And there are certainly chemicals or uh, molecules from nature that will trick the body into thinking that it's under, under adversity, under threat of survival. And, uh, you know, just like resveratrol, there's probably thousands of those in the animal and the plant world that we can take. But yeah, it's an interesting question. What else can we do to maximize the hormesis? You know, I I like to joke that anything that doesn't kill you uh, makes you live longer. Um, That's not exactly true, of course. There are things that will make us sick that are not good and, uh, you know, cause inflammation, that kind of stuff. But, you know, you get the principle that it's got to be, got to turn on the defenses of the cell and stabilize the epigenome without causing any lasting damage.
1: eventually want to order, so you never miss out. And if you really like something and want to keep it, you can opt to buy it at a massively discounted price. Friends, I am obsessed. This is finally the answer to wearing all the clothes all the time with none of the waste. Oh, and of course, one of my major reservations was the cleaning compounds that they use on the clothes because yes, it is dry cleaning, which normally makes me nervous. And they don't say this on the website, so I reached out to them and I was like, hey, what's going on with the cleaning? What do you guys use? Because I can't promote this if it's just normal dry cleaning. And thankfully, they let me know that they do not use any detergents, fabric softeners, or chemicals that are harsh. Everything is professionally dry cleaned or laundered with detergents that are free from dyes and scents. It's all gentle and it uses low temperature cycles. So yes, we are good on that front as well. It is the coolest thing ever. And you can try it free for a month. Yes, completely free. Just go to MelanieAvalanceCloset.com to sign up. Free clothes for a month. After that, their plans are super affordable. We're talking honestly, an entire month is less than the cost of typically what would be the cost of one dress. And I am not kidding. That's right. Unlimited clothes for less than the cost of one outfit. I'm just so thrilled to bring this resource to you guys. I can't wait to hear what you guys think. So again, get free unlimited clothes for a month at melanieavalonscloset.com. That's melanieavalonscloset.com for all of the clothes, none of the waste. And definitely share your pictures and tag me on Instagram because I want to see all the fabulous things that you guys are wearing. That's melanieavalonscloset.com. Friends, you guys know I love wine. Do you love wine? I've done a lot of research on wine, and I truly believe there are a myriad of health benefits. The longest-lived populations drink wine, the polyphenols have a ton of potential health benefits, activating anti-aging sirtuins, potentially supporting our immunity, maybe even encouraging weight loss. Yep, it's actually not alcohol that makes people gain weight, it's what they eat, I found the solution and guess what? I have a discount for you guys. So the founder of a company called Soulshine reached out to me and he was like, do you know about the importance of full spectrum light? And I was like, you know what? I've been wondering about this for quite a while. Please educate me. Oh my goodness. This man blew my mind. I talk a lot about the problems of blue light. That said, we evolved in natural full-spectrum sunlight that our genes are programmed to respond to. And today, we do not spend enough time in that light. A lot of us don't go outside, and we're overexposed to blue light. It's a problem. And then to make things even more problematic, the common sad lights that I was talking about that are bright white, they actually do not contain the full-spectrum light. They filter out certain wavelengths, and they're high in blue light. So just like I thought, actually filters through your eyes in a relatively short amount of time. That's the only way your blood is exposed to the outside world. So when we expose our eyes to this light, it actually can have beneficial effects on our blood. That is crazy. It helps with skin, with mood. This is the light that I wasn't thinking about that we need. I love SolShine's light therapy devices. I do use it in combination with my red and near infrared light devices as well so that I can fully bathe my body in the best light that is so helpful A lot of red wine fans out there. Um, Do you think the resveratrol – I'm so excited I'm talking to you. You're like the resveratrol guy. So that resveratrol, does it need to be supplemental form or can somebody get an adequate amount of resveratrol from a glass or two of wine, maybe specifically a high-stress varietal like Pinot Noir, or does it really need to be supplemental to get those benefits?
0: Well, it depends on what benefits we're talking about. If you wanna treat diabetes, you're not gonna get it from one glass of red wine, obviously, just to take the extreme view. But is a lifetime uh, of red wine drinking uh, beneficial? I think absolutely it is, it's small amounts. And red wine has a lot of other, what I call xenohormetic molecules. Um, these are molecules that signal to our body hormesis instead of us having to be stressed out. The plants can do it for us and we get those signals. Um, You know, there's quercetin um, or quercetin, some people call it. Uh, There's a whole bunch of what we know as polyphenols that activate the body's natural defenses against aging. Um, So that's kind of a long way of saying one glass won't make your life longer. It won't cure diabetes a day. Um, And the amounts that I take are about 500 glasses a morning, which I please don't do that. I don't recommend doing that. That'll severely damage your liver but I I think as part of a healthy lifestyle, as long as you're not overdoing it, I mean, red wine is one of the healthiest drinks you can have.
1: Yeah, I think it's actually a case where, you know, people will say, you know, have just a glass here and there. But I think it might be something where consistently just having it as part of your lifestyle in, you know, small to moderate amounts might be a healthy way to go.
0: Well, did, did you know, and this is not scientific, but did you know that the longest-lived people typically say that they they take in a lot of red wine, and if not red wine, it's some other polyphenol source like olive oil. Um, so the longest-lived woman, uh, Jeanne Carmain of France, lived to 122, uh, ostensibly, and uh, she attributed her longevity in part to a glass of red wine every day. And that's also true for the longest-lived man, Antonio Todd, at 116. He also said a port wine every day was for him. So, you know, it might be coincidental, but it it, kind of does
1: fit with what we're thinking here. No, I love it. And she, I think she also said something about some of her secrets were like laughter and then feeling like she was um, like, like could handle anything. So she wasn't like scared of stressors. Um, She always felt capable. And maybe that ties back into what we were saying about what you were saying about, you know, what doesn't kill you, makes you live longer and just the whole perspective of everything.
0: Yeah. The way I think of it is reduce mental stress, but biological stress is fine. And because they're different things, just because we have the same word for it doesn't mean they're the same. And so in my life, I'm doing as much as I can to wake my body up. I'm here at a standing desk in my office every day. Uh, I'm running on weekends, I'm jumping into hot tubs and sauna, uh, bathing. So that's all good for my body. Mentally, though, um, and I, I haven't often uh, talked about this, I'm a very different person now than I was 20 years ago. I was the biggest stressor of bad moods, lack of sleep, um, constant worry. Um, even as a teenager, so bad, it, you know, basically suicidal. Um, now I'm just very happy, content, can live with Stress of the day, and you know, partly it's maturity. You know that things are never as bad as they seem at the time, um, but it's also because I'm actively making sure that I don't worry.
1: No, I think it's so huge, and ironically, for me, I feel like I, I, I feel like I like for the longest time I had the mindset of I, I wasn't really stressed by things chronically. I, I felt like I could really handle anything. And it wasn't until I started – I actually read a whole book about how stress was really bad for you, like chronic stress. And um, then I started stressing about chronic stress. (laughs) And that was a very (laughs) – I should have never done that because then – it's like you said. I I almost wish there was a different word for chronic stress and physical stress because I think that could – I mean, I really think that could be a game changer. Even like if – like kind of like calories – or or the difference between or the word fat and like difference between dietary fat and um you know fat in our bodies but using the same word stress to define physical stress and to define mental stress i think they're so different and um i think the perception of it is is huge and i agree that the physical stress i think can be a, like a wonderful thing for our bodies and then it's that worry and that mindset which i think can just oh, do a number on you speaking of stress <laughs> um Intermittent fasting, calorie restriction, things like that. So, as you know, I've been on the, the intermittent fasting bandwagon for quite a while. I've been doing it for about 10 years now. And I so something I was wondering was in the in your book, you talk about being hungry, being supportive of longevity. So be that from fasting or a calorie-restricted diet, for example. Do you need to actually feel hungry because you talked about those studies where they're calorie restricted, but because of like the, the content of the diet, it suppressed their, their hunger signals. So they felt full and it, they didn't experience the same effects from longevity. So like when it comes to intermittent fasting, what if somebody, what if somebody is, it's really working for them and they're not hungry during the fastest date. So is it real hunger or perceived hunger? That's important.
0: Mm-hmm. Uh, well, we, we don't know, but I'm, I'm working on it. What it? Oh, really? Yeah. Okay. it, It seems to be that, uh, you don't have to feel hungry to get the benefit, but your body needs to perceive low energy, right? Because hunger isn't always associated with low energy. And, uh, for instance, I've got this glucose monitor that I'm, I'm try trying out and, um, you know this one, the Libra link, the one that you still patch under your arm that gives you a constant readout. And, I need uh, to
1: get one of those so
0: oh, they It's so <laughs> interesting. Um, anyway, so I'm going to take a reading under my arm just here, under yeah, on my, my arm flab here. And so I'm looking now at my phone, which is now registered the last few hours of my day. And uh, so my blood glucose level has hovered the whole day around hundred which is which is good you don't want it to go much above that now what's interesting is I can see on this when I'm getting hungry and when I'm not and I can tell you that it doesn't always correlate I can have really nice low blood sugar levels and not feel hungry and it often depends on my state of mind but also can depend on what I ate so often if I eat a, a plant meal so Today, I had a tiny little vegetable soup. My glucose level stayed nice and low, but uh, I'm not hungry. And so I think that my guess is my body is getting the benefits of low glu- glucose, and I don't have to suffer during that
1: process. So you think it's um, a blood sugar-related thing, like low blood sugar?
0: I, well, part of it's blood sugar, and part of it's got to do with uh, insulin But really what what I'm aiming to do is to get my my mitochondria activated, my my AMP kinase pathway that is upstream of that activated. And that gets activated when cells have low amounts of energy in the form of uh, chemical ATP. And so I'm trying to use glucose as a surrogate measure of low energy in my body. And having low energy... um, it will be compensated by the body by revving up metabolism and making its own energy which is what i think is the healthiest way to exist.
1: Okay, so for somebody in like the flip side situation because i know especially with like the obesity epidemic and people may feel like they have insatiable appetites even though they're eating, you know, way above their metabolic needs, i'm guessing it's safe to say that's probably not supportive of longevity even if they're experiencing seemingly hunger from it.
0: Exactly. That's the other side of the coin. It, it What we have seen in animals and in humans is that obesity is the best way to shut down your sirtuin defenses and accelerate that epigenetic clock, the loss of information in your body. Um, you know, I've, I haven't been super thin my whole life, but now that I'm thinking about things in terms of sirtuins being active and the epigenome, I I'm really trying hard to to have the minimum amount of fat
1: in my body. Okay. And then that also ties into I have so, so, I've been thinking so much about like metabolism, thyroid, things like that. Um, There are proponents when it comes to metabolism and growth and even like reproduction on both sides of the coin. You know, there are some people that say, you know, lower metabolism is better for longevity like a a lower metabolic rate, at least, like we will often see that on a, um, like a ketogenic diet, for example, and that low T3 levels are correlated to longevity. Then there's the people that are saying, you know, high metabolism is really important for longevity. What are your thoughts on metabolism and longevity?
0: Well, what we've seen is in our studies over the last 20 years is the, the correlation between longevity and metabolism uh, is the following. Uh, Longer-lived animals have much greater insulin sensitivity and mitochondrial activity. Okay. And so they're, they're actually burning more oxygen and uh, calorie restriction will do that too. Um, now, that doesn't prove that that's what the reason that they're living longer, but it, it's a very strong historical correlate. Um, and so I, I've always been of the opinion that that having more mitochondria and increased insulin sensitivity and lower fasting glucose levels are going to lead to a longer life. Um, I mean, there, there's a, a product called a- Acarbose that uh, lowers the amount of sugar in the, in the cells are able to take up and that extends lifespan in mice. So you know, I think it's the best I can say is that the science points to Uh, having highly active mitochondria, but not mitochondria that are spewing out free radicals, ones that are hyper-tuned by hormesis like exercise or um, even metformin will actually uh, reduce free radical damage. Um, Metformin we haven't talked about much, but it's a a way to, to trick the body into thinking it has low amounts of energy and it'll rev up the mitochondria as a result.
1: Okay, that, that makes sense. That so they're they're basically they're efficient and they're perfor- they're generating a lot of energy, but not necessarily a lot of extra oxidative energy. So, what are your thoughts on mitochondria generating energy from glucose versus ketones, for example?
0: Oh, well, I think ketones are very important. Um, I am I'm totally in sync with you on that. That you know, ketones will be high in animals that live a long time when we fast them. And getting back to the epigenome, there are modifications to the, um, the proteins that bundle the DNA that are, are ketones themselves or ketone-like molecules such as butyrate. And uh, there's more and more evidence that high levels of butyrate are, are helpful. Another one is um, acetate, acetate like acetic acid, basically, uh, you know, what you throw on British French, French fries, chips, that molecule also can be attached to the epigenome and help control it. And it looks very much like it when when you're fasting, uh, those modifications on these proteins are, are very good things. And that uh, we want to be able to control those with quite high fidelity.
1: Yeah, I was going to ask you a lot of questions about like the carnivore diet, for example, but then you're actually on my friend Paul Paul Saladino's podcast. So that made me really happy. I was like, yay. (laughs) I get to hear his thoughts on all of that in detail. Um, So for listeners, I'll definitely put a link to that in the show notes. You did mention metformin and – because we didn't even talk about like NAD much, NMM, NR, all these different potential interventional supplements one could take to support longevity out of all of that. So you, you use NMM or do you use NR? or NAD. What about NAD patches?
0: Huh. Well, okay. So first of all, before I forget, um, on page 304 of my book, it's all listed out what I do. So if I forget to mention something, you can go to the cheat sheet. Um, But do go back to part two, which talks about what you need to do to augment that and what might be good for you. Um, So NAD. Uh, So NAD is required for sirtuins to work. When we exercise, diet, it goes up. When we get older, we think it goes down. So NMN is the immediate precursor molecule that cells use to make NAD. And cells, if you go back one step, NR is what cells use to make NMN. So it goes basically from the start, which is actually vitamin B3 or niacin, gets made into nicotinamide riboside, NR, which gets made by the cell into NMN, which is nicotinamide mononucleotide, and then that's converted to NAD. And, you know, scientists are fighting over all the, the usual minutiae because um, the stakes are so low. And that they're arguing about which molecule's best, which one's taken up by cells, where it's taken up. Now, that's all good. I'm not saying we shouldn't study it. I think some, some scientists, my colleagues, should be a little less aggressive about it. But nevertheless, let, let, we can figure that out. But also... Um, Let's look at what is closest to the actual molecule. So NAD is NAD, that's the final molecule. The reason that NAD may not be the best, we don't know, but may not, is because it's a big molecule and it doesn't easily get into cells. But I'm open to the idea that maybe it can be taken up or degraded and taken up that way. Um, One step back, NMN, that's what I take. Why do I take NMN? We've been studying it for the last fifteen years, so you know I have a lot more information about it than anything else. But I also know that NMN has a uh, a phosphate attached to the to the molecule, whereas NR is lacking the phosphate. And you know I'm taking a large amount of NMN, which is a gram a day. Um, I don't want my body to have to search for a gram of phosphate just to uh, to fulfill my supplementation. Um, And so that's what little concerns me about NR. Now, others have argued and um, put out on the internet that NR is superior. Uh, First thing I'd say about that is whoever's giving that advice check that they're not affiliated with companies. Um, I don't affiliate with any supplement companies so that I can give unbiased advice. Um, Never have received money from a supplement company uh, and, and hopefully never will. The NR is possibly uh, able to help with uh, longevity, but I will say that there are now at least three clinical trials in people where NR um, hasn't had a big effect on metabolism. It's lowered inflammation quite effectively, but the kind of things that we see in mice such as endurance and mitochondrial activity um, going up have not been recapitulated yet with NR. Um, and that's another reason that that I'm thinking maybe NMN, if it does work, is the superior molecule. But either way, let's just see what the data says. Um, and then finally, the, the very simplest molecule is vitamin B3 or niacin, also known as niacinamide or nicotinic acid or nicotinamide. Um, I wouldn't take high doses of nicotinamide because it actually inhibits sirtuins. Um, so that I would avoid, but also these other precursors are very simple molecules and the body has to build them up using ribose and then phosphate. And these are things then the body has to pull from other places or synthesize. Um, And that actually turns out that's why they don't raise NAD levels the way these other molecules do.
1: Okay. I have some NMM sitting in my, well, it's in my refrigerator, is it supposed to be refrigerated?
0: Please do. yeah. NR is the most unstable. If it gets a little bit of moisture and even if it just sits at room temperature, it will go bad after a few months. It's losing the nicotinamide. So the vitamin B3 part of it falls off pretty easily. Um, keeping it either in the freezer or if not, the fridge uh, is the best way.
1: I haven't taken it yet. I was like, I'm going to wait. <laughs> Talk to David Sinclair.
0: People wrote to me, uh, have written to me and say, said, oh, I just bought it from the company. Is it, is it ineffective? Probably, probably not. It, it still takes a few weeks for it to go bad. Um, but I think for long-term storage, yeah, you definitely don't want to have it sitting on the shelf and not let it get exposed to the air at all.
1: Can you take it in the fasted state or with food?
0: I do. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I do that to enhance my NAD levels. And the important thing about NAD levels is that they cycle through the day. They'll start going up when you get hungry in the morning. And I want to just accentuate that and get the peaks higher, and so I take my enamine in the morning when I when I skip breakfast.
1: Would it absorb topically? Do you know, or does it need to be?
0: Um, it probably does get absorbed somewhat because it's so um, it's a small molecule, but uh, I don't know if anybody's tested that. You know, I've um, I've seen some products that have enamine in facial cream, um, but I haven't seen proof that it gets in. Why do you, do you rub it on your face?
1: Oh, I haven't used it yet, but I'm just sort of becoming obsessed with the idea of topical application when possible, but mostly due to my, my less than perfect GI state. (laughs) Um, So I'm like, what can I take topically?
0: It's a good idea. And I, I've been using some creams that we developed in my lab for the last 10 years. And, uh, um, I'm apparently, uh, not super wrinkled. So it seems potentially to have helped. But I, yeah, I agree that you you should be able to activate these defenses in your skin, just like we can do with, with these molecules when we eat them.
1: One really quick rapid fire question that I've been dying to ask. Um, it's been posited that too much fasting could actually deplete stem cells. Do you think that's a problem with daily intermittent fasting?
0: No, but I haven't, I don't have proof of it. But it but it sounds against everything that I've learned over over the, the years.
1: Do you think it would be extended would extended fasting be a potential for depleting stem cells?
0: Um, well, let's look at look at the results of intermittent fasting. Uh, you know, there are Greek Orthodox um, that fast for many days. I have no maybe you do, but I have no evidence that people and communities that fast for short or long periods. Are losing their stem cells and dying early. It's the opposite. These are the longer, longest lived people on the on Earth. So I, I don't see how anyone can argue that we're hurting ourselves by fasting.
1: Okay. No, I I, I agree. Good to hear that. Okay. Two final questions because I know your time is super valuable. One, bringing everything home. So, say there was a society where people happen to live till they were 200 like that was just what was normal and then you had and that was due to their biology but then you had like a person who actually had our biology today put in that society but they didn't know they had like our normal biology so they thought it was normal to live to 200. Um, Do you think in that situation that person might live to 200 just because of the epigenetic potential of mindset, the environment, things like that. And then on the flip, the flip side question would be what if there was somebody who you actually did all of this genetic manipulation to, to live, to be 200 in today's society, but because of their mindset, maybe they thought they were, you know, had a chronic illness or a disease or something. Is it possible that they actually would get old and die really early because, because of their mind?
0: Wow. Okay. Well, stop me if I don't, I don't answer everything you just said, but starting with the first one, Um, it looks like we we have about 20 to 30 years to play with without how we look after ourselves. But we know the maximum human lifespan is 122 and the average is 80. So that's a a long gap to to be playing with. And it's been shown in twin studies that 80% of your, your lifespan is in your own hands and you can have a big impact. So how much of an impact? I mean, based on a lot of studies in monkeys and in, in rodents, um, probably you can only extend your lifespan by about ten to twenty percent by li- leading uh, a good life. Uh, maybe if we learn more and the combinations of various things, we'll get even further. Um, but I don't think we're going to be able to double our lifespan just with a positive attitude and doing some good things. I think that's too much to ask. Our biology. Uh, our genome is too powerful uh, to overcome uh, these these changes to the epigenome. Even if we do the best, have the best epigenome, our genomes is still going to do us in. But imagine if we could engineer somebody to live from go from eighty up to two hundred. Uh, I think that's doable because whales do it, um, and there's, there may be just some genes that we could strengthen the epigenome and allow us to live much much longer. Because if 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 I'm right and the epigenome is the main cause of aging, as long as we stabilize it, all these other causes of aging and disease should go away or at least be slowed down dramatically. And then finally, I just want to say that these are really good thought experiments because they also open up your mind to why it's silly to call aging something different than disease. Because that person who's in a society where everyone lives to 200 and they're 80, they're going to be regarded as having this horrible Condition and of course the FDA is going to approve a drug, uh, even a gene therapy, to help them live like the rest of us. But because we all only live eighty years, the FDA and the medical profession says, "Yeah, that's natural. That's what we should do. Deal with." But imagine a world where we all live that long and only a few people lived eighty years. Then that would be a disease that we'd, we'd raise money to try and treat.
1: Exactly, and then and then for the the flip side. A person who you put, you know, you do all the genetic manipulation to. So, in theory, they should live to be 200, but they're convinced that they're sick and dying.
0: Well, they could probably counteract all the good research and medicines that we gave them if we changed their epigenome to live 200, but they sat on the couch and became giant uh, and obese and didn't do all these good things we've talked about today. Um, Yeah, you can shorten your lifespan, no question. It's pretty easy to shorten your lifespan it's lengthening it. That's the hard part.
1: All right. Well, thank you so much. So the the last question that I ask every single person on this podcast, and it's because I realized how important mindset is when it comes to health and longevity and just everything. So what is something that you're grateful for?
0: Oh, well, there's a thousand things. Um, I'm grateful that uh, I found a soulmate who puts up with me. I'm not an easy person. I'm often obsessed and busy. And she's tolerated me for more than 20 years. Uh, And then we have a a great three kids uh, that we have managed to produce and so far not to kill them. So I'm grateful for that. That's what makes my life worth living. But then on top of that, the real cherry is that I'm grateful to have a career uh, to do things that I would do for free, but I get paid for. Um, It's super fun every day, trying to come in and discover things about the world. And leave the world a better place, hopefully.
1: Well, that is wonderful. And thank you so much. I am so grateful for for your work, for everything you're doing. I've been looking forward to this interview for so long and it was so magical for me. <laughs> and I'm just, I will eagerly be following all of your work from here on out as I have been. And um, so for the audience, how how can they best follow your work?
0: Oh, well, yeah, the, the book, Gives you the best primer and foundation for what we're going to be talking about going forward um, and how to live your life today to extend your healthy life. That's I'd start with that. The audiobook people seem to love. Um, listen to it in the car. Additional things. So the field is changing very quickly. So I update uh, folks on my website, which has a, a newsletter. So you can sign up for that. Lifespanbook.com. Uh, and then day to day, I'm also on social media. So I'll post various things on Instagram where I'm, uh, David Sinclair, PhD. And, uh, and on Twitter, you know, a few times a day, I'm sending out either new discoveries or things that, uh, tips to live a longer life. And that's David A. Sinclair.
1: Awesome. So for listeners, I will put links to all of that in the show notes. And again, the show notes will be at melanieavalon.com slash lifespan. Well, thank you so much, David. This has been absolutely amazing. I, I'm i just so happy right now. I can't even describe.
0: <laughs> uh, yeah, I was hoping to meet you too. Uh, this has been great. Thanks, Melanie. And continue what you're doing because it's it's science-based and you know not everyone says what you're saying, but it totally fits with our research.
1: Oh, well, thank you. And you as well.